Hi, everyone. This is More Than One Lesson. We want to thank you for listening. My name is Reed Lackey. Once again, I am filling in as guest host for Tyler Smith. You would normally hear me as one of three co-hosts with Josh and Robert. But this week, I wanted to take an opportunity to talk to you about a television show, which is not something that we normally cover. More Than One Lesson is, of course, movie talk for the discerning Christian. But uh, this week, I, I, I wanted to take an opportunity. You've heard of this show. Some of you, maybe many of you, have seen at least a few episodes. Uh, maybe you've seen the whole run of the show. If you haven't, please check it out because it's really, really wonderful. You know the name. I know the name. Everybody knows your name. Uh, I want to talk to you about Cheers, that classic hit from the 80s and early 90s. Debuted in 1982, September 30th, I believe. And it ranked somewhere in the neighborhood of 74th or 75th out of 77 TV shows. <laughs> it uh, was nearly last place in the ratings, and its first season was almost viewed by no one. But it had a lot of support from critics, and it got a lot of Emmy nominations, and it was heavily supported by the president of Paramount at the time. So that largely was due to the, to the show having a chance to succeed and finding an audience, and it went on to become one of the most highly praised and critically acclaimed television shows in history, television history. It frequently winds up on best of lists of the of the greatest TV shows of all time. A few episodes wind up on the greatest TV episodes of all time. It is immensely popular. As I said, you've probably uh, seen at least a handful of episodes or at least some clips from some episodes. Um, it ran for 11 seasons. That's that's a pretty phenomenal run. And I believe in its I believe in its season eight or nine, it was number one in the ratings. So it was immensely popular. It uh, garnered 117 Emmy nominations. It won 28 of those, uh, both acting and production and writing. It's probably one of the greatest written TV shows of all time. And uh, the theme song, <laughs> which you've heard and uh, can probably sing along with me, is uh, Where Everybody Knows Your Name by Gary Portnoy. And it is one of the catchiest theme songs in the history of television. It is it will stick in your brain. Probably just seeing the name of the show will will put that theme song in your head. Uh, but for those of you who may know absolutely nothing about the show, the simple premise is that it's set in a local bar in Boston where some friends get together frequently and regularly to eat and drink and socialize, and they kind of become, over the course of the show, a sort of absurd, dysfunctional little family. Uh, definitely friends, uh, dear, dear friends with each other, and as I said, kind of become almost to that level of, of a dysfunctional a family of sorts. So how I want to tackle this, I mean, there's several different ways that we could approach a conversation about a TV show, and I want to keep this as brief as 
possible. So what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to tackle this by talking about the characters, the core characters. And after I talk for a couple minutes, each character, uh, I'll tell you, I'll recommend an episode to you to go and watch um, as my personal favorite episode featuring this character. So we're just going to kind of go through the characters one by one, and then I'll give you some episode recommendations. As of this recording, um, and probably as of this this airing, it is available to stream on Netflix, all 11 seasons. I believe it is also available to, spring, to stream on Amazon Prime and on Hulu. So there are ways to see this show. There should be ways to look up the episodes that I mention uh, and check them out and watch them. So uh, sit back, relax, uh, pour yourself a cold drink of your choice, and, uh, and let's dive into a conversation about the TV show Cheers. So let's start by talking about the owner of this wonderful establishment, Cheers, uh, Sam Malone. Sam Malone is a former baseball player. He's an ex-Major League Baseball player who had one or two glory seasons, as it were, and then had to give up the game and give up that profession actually due to a drinking problem. One of the things that I find very interesting about Sam Malone's character, he's played by Ted Danson, uh, Emmy-winning actor Ted Danson. And I do find it interesting that most of the time, even though he owns and operates a bar, you see him drinking water. Uh, the show makes a, a very definite point in several of the episodes that he's drinking water and not partaking in any of the alcohol at the bar because he formerly struggled with alcoholism. So there are a couple of plot lines through the run of the show where, due to the circumstances, he either is tempted to take up drinking again and in one extended plot line he takes up, he does take up drinking again i won't spoil the particulars there but sam malone is uh the only about the only other thing that you could definitively say his defining characteristic as it were is that he is a consummate ladies man uh, ted danson is a very good looking actor and sam malone has perfect hair uh he's tall he's got a perfect tan he drives a perfect car sports car he is a an absolute hit with the ladies and you see him frequently throughout the show uh, picking up different ladies strangers he's got a huge black book of ladies phone numbers that he calls at any given point that's one of the primary sort of elements of his character throughout the run of the show but how the the creators play that off in certain plot lines is that he has all these dalliances with different ladies but then there's always a character at the bar that he's trying to have an extended long-term relationship with. Uh, in the first five seasons, that's with Diane Chambers, who we'll talk about in a bit. And in the last half of the series, that's with Rebecca Howe, played by Kirstie Alley, who we'll also talk about in a little bit. But it's interesting that Sam has all these romantic dalliances, these little affairs, but he can't seem to make an actual uh, long-term relationship work. But despite being something of a womanizer, that word feels a little too harsh to describe Sam's character because he's way more likable than that term would would really uh, indicate. But he has a genuinely good heart. He really cares about his patrons, particularly the regular patrons. And uh, he's very giving as a person, very generous as a person. And you often see him leaving the bar to go and do things for essentially his bar patrons, but he's doing things for them as a friend. And uh, th that was that's interesting. You forget that, yeah, Sam's just the guy who owns the bar that these people frequent because he's, he becomes so involved in their personal lives and trying to help them out of certain jams and personal situations. Uh, my favorite episode that 
features Sam Malone uh, is actually all the way in season 11. And uh, how I'm going to reference these episodes is I'll just sort of set you up with their premise and then let you go watch the episode and enjoy them, hopefully in, in, to the degree that I do. But there's an episode called The Magnificent Six. Uh, it's in season 11. I think it's the fourth or fifth episode, but it's called The Magnificent Six. And it prominently features Sam after coming off of uh, some tragic circumstances where the Cheers bar actually largely burnt down. They barely got it repaired. And um, so he's kind of just trying to get back on his feet again with the bar. And meanwhile, there's a new bartender, uh, a just a small recurring character named Henri. Uh, he's a French guy who is covering for Woody, another character we'll talk about soon uh, while he's on his honeymoon. And Henri challenges Sam to see who is the best ladies man in the bar so they they after some hemming and hawing they develop this contest to see who can acquire the most phone numbers in a set amount of time just from the patrons in the bar and uh hilarity ensues obviously as they the different men try different tactics to acquire different ladies phone numbers it's it's pretty comical in that general bit but it has one of the hands down uh most satisfying endings i, I won't even come close to spoiling it um one of the most satisfying endings to an episode of cheers i chuckle even just thinking about it please check out uh, if you want to if you want to get a taste of of sam malone uh in his in his prime check out season 11 epi- season 11's episode called the magnificent six but as i mentioned before sam's character uh especially through the first five seasons despite being a consummate ladies man is also trying to uh, develop a relationship with one miss diane chambers who is played by Shelley Long uh, in an Emmy-winning performance. And she is uh, she appears in the pilot episode of the show. She is a fiance of Professor uh, Sumner Sloan. And the, the show opens by them wandering into Cheers. And Sumner is leaving to acquire a wedding ring uh, from his ex-wife. And he only returns one more time to say that he could not acquire the wedding ring, and eventually uh, he leaves again and then never returns. Uh, So Diane is left uh, with no job and no future because her her relationship has fizzled out. Sam, in uh, pity for her, decides to give her a job as a waitress at Cheers, and the rest is history. She spends the next five seasons uh, trying to kind of find herself, discover what she wants to do, Diane is an interesting character. She is extremely sophisticated. I would even say she's she's snobbish. She has very particular ideas about um, what it means to be an intellectual elite. She is uh, just very verbose. She has a tremendous vocabulary. She's somebody who is the polar opposite of of Sam Malone. Sam Malone is this, uh, you know, typical alpha male, but she is not the the typical or stereotypical vision of a woman. And in fact, uh, and, and I haven't done enough research to speak completely candidly about this, but I do know that there's been a lot of studies on the the sort of feminism element in uh, Cheers, particularly in the first five seasons with Diane Chambers' character. She um, is, again, as I said, very intellectually elite. She loves sophisticated things. She loves having sophisticated conversations. She uh, carries herself in a kind of a, as I would mentioned, rather snobbish manner at times. But 
She's also kind of high-minded in the sense that she has very particular ethical ideals and expects the people around her to adhere to those same ethical ideas. And uh, she often butts heads not only with Sam Malone, but also with Carla Tortelli, um, who we will get to in just a moment. But um, Diane is somebody who, if I'm being candid about it, I, I never really sort of loved her character she frequently was very annoying um they they have some brilliant uh, plot lines involving the on again off again relationship between her and sam and uh i do think that she is a phenomenal character in the sense that she's very well crafted she's very focused um she's consistent throughout the run of the five seasons she's very believable even though she is a bit outrageous and she's performed wonderfully by shelly long um, the character just kind of got to me because she she's can be a little annoying. <laughs> she can be kind of uh, demanding and uh, and intimidating. So it, it's just one of those things where I just never really connected with her uh, on, a, on a personal level. But I do have a favorite episode that I want to recommend. It's from season four. It's episode 22. And the the official episode title is called Banditos, but it's commonly known as Diane Chambers Day. And it's a it basically... The plot line revolves around the fact that Diane sort of realizes that she's mostly excluded from the get togethers that the Cheers patrons have. Uh, the, they get together uh, as friends outside of the bar and she's usually not included. And this makes her very sad, so sad and so depressed that uh, the character of Frazier, Frazier Crane, um, he suggests, why don't you take her out to do some of her favorite things, specifically to see an opera? So you get uh, Sam Woody, Norm, and Cliff taking Diane to see an opera, and you can imagine if you if you're familiar with those characters, you can imagine what kind of comedy uh, ensues from that. But I think the last four or five minutes of that episode, particularly, is just vintage Diane, and it is a uh, it's perfectly indicative of the frustrations and the endearments that her character brings to this show. So I would recommend that as a, as a great sort of Diane Chambers uh, episode. But she is somebody who she actually only was there uh, for the first five seasons. And throughout season four and five, she and Sam come very close to being engaged and getting married a few times. Uh, refusals always on her part, uh, almost always on her part. And uh, I, I have to say this before we move on to the rest of the characters that um, I know I'm recommending kind of one episode for each character, but for the Sam and Diane relationship, check out the the two parter. I, th I believe it's two parters. It's called I Do I Do. It's the season five finale, which saw kind of some finality to the Sam and Diane relationship because Shelley Long was leaving the show. And it is hilarious it is sensitive it's uh very emotional surprisingly emotional particularly in its last few minutes and it is it is wonderful uh, it might be one of the best episodes of the show entirely uh, so so in addition to banditos uh, diane chambers day check out i do adieu for a good encapsulation of sam and diane's uh, relationship but of all the people that Diane clashes with, besides Sam, uh, it would have to be Carla Tortelli. So Carla is Cheers' longstanding waitress, and she is 
a fireball. She is continually insulting of people for uh, really any reason, appearance or attitude or sound of their voice <laughs> or just general displeasure with them. She is uh, she treats the bar patrons very poorly, including at one point uh, splashing a drink <laughs> into a bar patron's face. Uh, that person happened to be played by Rhea Perlman's father. Rhea Perlman plays Carla. And uh, uh, Rhea Perlman won four Emmys for her time playing Carla. She is an absolutely outstanding character. She is, has some of the funniest lines uh, in, in any given episode, usually revolving around some insult that she hurls at someone. But she's an interesting character in that she's uh, she's pretty devoutly religious. She's uh, openly Catholic, which means <laughs> that she does not practice birth control. And uh, by the time the show begins, she already has four children with her ex-husband, Nick. And by the time the show ends, she has had four more children with three different men. That's one of the elements of uh, of her character. And uh, one of the things that I find so interesting about Carla in general is uh, that She's very feisty and she absolutely has kind of a, a stiff backbone to her, but uh, she is also capable of surprising vulnerability. Uh, there's a couple of times where she really clashes with a couple of members of the cast. And then by the end of the episode, you realize that they all see her as kind of their, uh, I don't know if you'd call it little sister, but, but they all sort of see her as somebody that they need to take care of or that they need to help. Um, in fact, in a season one episode, when she discovers that she is, is pregnant with yet another child, they, uh, they all pitch in and basically communicate to her by pitching in with some money and communicating to her that she's not going to have to go through this by herself, that they're all with her, they're all around her, and that they'll be her, be there for her no matter what. So she is uh, she's surrounded by love and affection despite uh, her, her bite and, uh, and the bile that she sometimes spits out at people. One episode that uh, I would recommend for this is, uh, again, in the, in the very end of the show. It's in season 11, I believe it, one of the last two or three episodes, but the episode is called It's Lonely at the Top. And Carla has had kind of a, a drunken night where she has consumed so much alcohol that she knows she went home with somebody, but she cannot remember who it is. So there's a, there's a little bit of a mystery uh, surrounding who it is. And then when it gets to, when, when it's finally revealed, who it is when she finally realizes who it is. She's so embarrassed and ashamed uh, about it that she that she seeks some comfort and some help from Sam, who she's always viewed as kind of a big brother. It features I was talking earlier about Sam Malone's sort of good heart. It features one of the most vulnerable and revealing moments in the history of of cheers from Sam Malone. Uh, I, I won't say anything about uh, exactly what happens. I'll just say it involves his hair and it is hysterical. And if you've watched the show, uh, at any point in time uh, and heard about the, the, the fuss that Sam always makes about his hair, uh, then it's a, it's a worthy moment to see. But Carla's a, a wonderful character. Uh, Rhea Perlman delivers a fantastic performance every episode. She and Sam and Norm are the only three characters who appear in every episode of the show. Um, so she kind of along with Sam is part of the part of the heart. Um, if, if Sam is the anchor and uh, she and, and, and he's kind of the soul of the show, um, um, then she would definitely be the uh, I'll just go ahead and say she's the mouth. <laughs> she's the uh, she's the wit of the show. Um, and uh, that brings us to the one and only Norm. 
Norm Peterson, played by George Wendt, is uh, Cheer's most notorious and uh, famous patron. He is in every single episode, although in the pilot episode, he appears and has only one line. Uh, Carla, or not Carla, uh, Diane is telling her whole story about how she came to work for Cheers, and he silences her with just the word, beer which is uh pretty uh pretty appropriate for the character every single time the character walks into the bar uh he says hi everybody and everybody turns around and says norm to to the degree that at one point when um the character Frazier and his wife Lilith are uh their their child is there and the whole episode has been about trying to get the child to speak and uh the child's first word is as soon as you know Norm walks in and goes afternoon everyone and then he says norm it, it's silly but it's pretty funny every single episode so George Went obviously plays him wonderfully it's a it's a brilliantly realized character to the degree that uh that Went is irrevocably associated with the character of Norm Peterson. Um, he's appeared in a couple of uh, promo spotlights and in a couple of other TV shows as the character of Norm in that same iteration. Uh, Norm is is just feels like he lives at the bar. In fact, often he is uh, unemployed throughout the show. Uh, he is an accountant, and he also uh, has a, a job as a painter for a number of, of seasons, uh, freelance painter. But uh, but a lot of times he just he just spends his time at the bar. In fact, there's one really funny opening gag that uh, a character comes in and starts talking with Woody, the bartender. And when the character starts talking, he says, wow, this place has changed so much. I haven't been in here in years. I mean, it's probably been maybe 20 years or more since I've been in here. That stairway used to be over there and and they've changed the wallpaper. They've completely reupholstered the stools. They've completely redesigned the bar. And they, there used to be uh, another big pole like right there. And Woody goes, Goes, right where he says right there behind norm <laughs> so, implying that uh, everything has changed about the bar except for uh, of course norm still sitting there on his on his corner in his stool um norm has a wife named vera who is often talked about but never shown in fact the only episode where she makes a physical appearance moments before we see her face a pie is thrown into her face so uh, we never actually see what she looks like he often jokes about her and, and sort of criticizes and puts her down. But then the show often reveals that he is deeply in love with her and very devoted to her to the degree that uh, he will, when given a blatant opportunity to uh, to be uh, unfaithful to her, he denies it categorically out of his love for her and out of his moral sensibilities. So he's an interesting guy. And obviously, his, as much as he loves his wife, his first love appears to be just a good old fashioned beer. Um, he can never seem to get enough of it and uh, evidently has run up a tab that is astronomical that probably could never be paid. <laughs> but uh, a favorite episode for Norm. I seem to really love uh, season 11, uh, if you, as I'm realizing as I'm looking at these episodes. But my, my recommended episode for Norm is an episode from season 11, season uh, 11, episode 3, called The King of Beers, where Norm, uh, who, as I mentioned, is frequently unemployed, finally gets a job as a beer taster and oh man I, I don't want to say anything about the episode but it is wonderful and hilarious and uh, just a, a brilliant showcase for Went as an actor and for Norm Peterson as a character. It was actually directed by John Ratzenberger um, who actually plays the next character I want to tell you about. One Mr. Cliff Clavin. Now Cliff 
uh, played by John Ratzenberger, as I mentioned. If I were being completely honest, uh, I probably have a little bit of the Cliff Clavin in me, particularly the you know fountain of useless, senseless, trivial knowledge, uh, as is indicated by this episode, as a matter of fact. But uh, Cliff is uh, a frequenter of Cheers, obviously. He's a postal worker, very devoted to the post office profession, and he lives with his mother, played by Frances Sternhagen, in a recurring role. He thinks he knows everything about everything. He has some of the funniest, wittiest, and most ridiculous lines uh, in the entire show. And he always professes himself to be just this fountain of knowledge and sophistication, but it's clear that he's just sort of bloating his own ego. Um, he really has no relationships to speak of. There are a couple of times in the show, which the show actually does some surprisingly sweet things with him uh, in the area of romance, but he really is just this ultra nerdy postal worker filled with a bunch of, you know, silly trivial facts and people in the bar, people in cheers really never express or rarely ever express any sort of genuine affection for him. They tease him. They uh, belittle him. They berate him. Carla most especially, as I mentioned, she has a bite and a wit to her. Most of that is hurled towards Cliff. And what's funny about it is that they also have several moments where you can tell deep down they really love this guy. But nobody wants to admit it or or especially not admit it to him or speak up about it because he will just take that and run with it. And then it, that would just be too much to handle. So they're just going to keep him at arm's length. He's the butt of their jokes. He's the guy that they always pick on and tease and belittle because they know he's always going to come back. He's he's like a little puppy dog of the show, hopelessly devoted and always dependable and reliable, just just like the good old fashioned postal worker suffers a lot of abuse, but um, but is always reliable and dependable when you need him. Uh, I, it's it's difficult to pick a favorite Cliff Clavin episode, but I have to point you, if you're honestly, if you're only going to watch one episode of Cheers, then watch an episode from season eight called What Is dot 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 Cliff Clavin. Um, it is possibly, arguably the funniest episode of the entire show. Cliff Clavin, this fountain of trivial, just inane factoids actually gets to play on Jeopardy. And I just don't want to tell you anything about the show. I just hopefully I've I've said enough to go and check it out. It's in season eight. Uh, what is Cliff Clavin? Uh, this man who for several years has been touting himself as a fountain of trivial knowledge finally gets to put himself to the test uh, in in one of the funniest episodes. Uh, I, again, I just can barely control myself thinking about the <laughs> the final moments of the episode. It's wonderful. Um, so check out what is Cliff Clavin from season eight. Now, despite the fact that Sam Malone is the owner of Cheers and frequently tends the bar, he also uh, hires a bartender. And in the first three seasons, uh, that bartender is Coach Ernie Pantuso, Coach for short. Everybody calls him Coach. He's played by uh, Nicholas Calasanto. And that actor is uh, just a sweet, lovable, endearing, old, uh, just blunderer. He's, he's, uh, absolutely ignorant. And I, it, it's, it's difficult to say, to use the word ignorant, even though the character is rather buffoonish, but he's very sweetly naive, I think would be a better way, uh, to say that, that he's just, he is a very, 
simple character, simple-minded character. Um, there's many, many jokes uh, revolving around his own sort of absent-mindedness and his own sort of uh, inability to process certain pieces of information beyond just the most rudimentary facts of life. But um, he's he's just such a sweet and endearing character. And uh, Nicholas Calasanto actually, uh, during the third season, uh, was suffering some severe health issues. And uh, unfortunately, during the filming of the third season, uh, he, he passed away. And uh, the show was really... Uh, looking for some way to find, to, to kind of fill that void. And it was looking for some means to sort of have the same feel as we had with, with Coach Pantuso, a naive, sweet, genuinely good hearted character, but, um, who, who wouldn't really know very much, who wouldn't really have a lot to, to combat with in sort of the intellectual realm, um, but just be a sweet, loving little simpleton. And so they brought on one Woody Harrelson to play a character named Woody Boyd. And Woody Boyd is every single thing that, and at least initially, he is every single thing that Coach Pantuso was, um, except just a younger character. He's from a small town, lives a very simple sort of country bumpkin kind of life, very naive, very innocent, genuinely sweet, just a pure, sweethearted guy, which is really ironic given that he was played by Woody Harrelson. That was Woody Harrelson's sort of big breakout role. And if you know anything about Woody Harrelson on a personal level, uh, he could not have been uh, more different from the character of, of Woody Boyd. But the reason I wanted to talk about those two characters together, Coach obviously is only in the first three seasons, and then Woody carries out the run of the last eight seasons. So we see a lot more of Woody than we do of Coach, but I wanted to talk about them together, even though the performances are very different, and even though the the uh, stylistic choices of the actors are very different, and even the backstories and where they take the story, where they take the characters are different. It represents this sort of simplicity that I love about the show. I've always loved the idea of a bartender who just sort of sits and listens to people's troubles and isn't trying very hard to be more than he is. He's, he's just, uh, he just wants to serve, uh, just get people their drink, listen to their troubles, send them on their way when it's time to send them on their way, run a good establishment, keep things tidy and smooth and efficient. And I just really feel like the idea of these characters, both Coach and Woody, being so simple, good-hearted, good-natured, and openly very endearing is a comforting thing. Just uh, there's always somebody there who you never have to question their motives. You never have to question uh, if they're really going to listen to you, if you, if they're trustworthy. Um, so I always found that very appealing about that idea for a bartender and and having that be uh, a a staple of the Cheers establishment uh, really appeals a lot to me. I'm going to uh, give you an episode for each character. For Coach, obviously, we only have a few seasons to choose from, but uh, I'm going to recommend an episode from season one. Uh, it's actually the fifth episode of the show called Coach's Daughter. It just basically, Coach's daughter is dating someone that he doesn't approve of, and it, it's a really... It's a simple plot line, the the unapproving dad trying to protect the daughter, but it has a surprising amount of heart to it and deals a lot with an with an element of the show that I really appreciate, which is that there's there's people who 
just don't think that their ship is ever going to come in. They don't think that anybody's ever going to really love them because they think they're sort of less than uh, either for their wits or for their appearance. Um, and Coach's daughter uh, has some really nice moments uh, regarding that particular theme. So check out uh, Season 1, Episode 5, uh, Coach's Daughter. Now, for the character of Woody, he eventually falls in love with a social elite by the name of Kelly Gaines. She is incredibly wealthy. And Woody, who is from relatively low station and has, you know, he works as a bartender, so he doesn't make a ton of money. Um, but he, he falls in love with her and she falls in love with him. She, like him, is very naive about the rest of the world. Her because she was very sheltered um, and him because, again, he, he was sheltered just in a different way. The show, I should say, takes great opportunity to sort of pit classes against each other. Kelly Gaines... Very upper elite, ultra wealthy, and then Woody, very simple, uh, lived almost a country bumpkin life. And uh, the two of them fall in love and develop uh, a blending of their own life together. But if I were going to recommend an episode, you have to check an, uh, check out an episode from season seven called The Gift of the Woody. It uh, is about the 19th episode of season seven. And it, it really highlights this sort of class element, but also the sweet naivete of both uh, the character of Woody Boyd and of Kelly Gaines, who he eventually who he eventually falls in love with and marries. Um, I almost recommended their wedding episode, uh, but uh, but I think The Gift of the Woody is a better illustration of what I love about those characters. Basically, everybody is providing Kelly with lavish gifts, very expensive gifts, extremely expensive gifts, um, and Woody just can't compete with that. So Woody's solution uh, is one of the most charming and endearing uh, moments in the whole run of the show, particularly revolving around Woody. So uh, check out from Season 7 uh, the episode called The Gift of... Of the Woody. Now we're rounding the home stretch here. I just have a couple more characters I want to tell you about, and then uh, I'll, I'll mention what I love most about the show, and then we'll we'll bring this to a close. Um, of course, you knew we were eventually going to get here. I mentioned him uh, just in passing earlier, but uh, of course we have the character of Fraser Crane, the uh, intellectually elite psychologist who is um, the smartest man in the room, um, but also has his own sort of particular. Uh, social awkwardness, if you want to call it that. He's, uh, he's, he's a, a very, it's hard to describe exactly how I feel about Frazier because like Cliff, I think if you were, to, if you were to sum me up, I am uh, probably equal parts Frazier and Cliff Clavin. You mash Frazier and Cliff together, you probably get me. Um, just full of useless trivial knowledge, but then also just thinks I have all the world's problems figured out and I'm the best help for anybody. Frazier is is desperate to be accepted. When he first enters the show, he is actually a love interest of Diane, which uh, causes some initial tension uh, between he and Sam. Diane moves on in the world, and uh, Frazier, of course, sticks around. But there's always that sort of underbelly between uh, Frazier and Sam that they've had that shared experience of dating the whirlwind cyclone of what it was like to date Diane Chambers. So uh, Frazier has some of the wittiest and sharpest lines uh, in the entire show. But unlike Carla, who just has 
this brilliant perfection of insults, Frasers are more high-minded and and elite. He he tries his hardest sometimes to be sort of one of the bar flies, as it were, and and he's just so not that guy. <laughs> um, he's he's in with the rest of these people, but he's also so unlike these people. And he eventually falls in love with one Lilith Sternan, played by B.B. Newirth. I don't think I mentioned that Frasier is played by Kelsey Grammer. I think. Uh, at this at this point, I'm assuming everybody knows that, but maybe they don't. So Kelsey Grammer plays Fraser Crane, and BB Newirth plays Lilith Sternin. The two of them develop a relationship. They are two of the most awkward uh, intellectual elites you are ever going to find in any television show, except for maybe uh, The Big Bang Theory or something. But they are fascinating characters. They clearly have. And a sort of upper class mentality and sort of an elitist mentality. But at the same time, particularly Frazier is fascinating to me because it seems almost that he wants to be accepted and wants to be liked and reacted to as one of the boys, as just one of the gang, one of the guys. Um, but he, he also is just incredibly sophisticated, highly educated man, uh, unlike Cliff Clavin, who is just sort of a wealth of trivial knowledge, Frazier has an actual substantial education. And uh, of course, he's, he's a doctor. He's a psychologist. So that's, that would, uh, that would come to be expected. But, um, I did want to recommend an episode to, to sort of highlight both the dynamic between Frazier and Lilith and just a, a real showcase for all of the acting talent. I wanted to point to a season five episode called Dinner at Eight-ish. The The premise is just basically that Frazier and Lilith have decided to take their relationship to the next level. They're going to move in together and to sort of christen the relationship, they invite Sam and Diane, who are in a relationship at the time, over for uh, uh, just a pleasant evening. <laughs> and uh, things do not go according to plan. I'll just leave it at that. So look up uh, from season five, uh, the episode called Dinner at Eight-ish. And last but not least, we come to the character of Rebecca Howe, played by Kirstie Alley. And Rebecca was brought in as a replacement when Shelley Long decided to leave the show um, as Diane Chambers. And so Rebecca comes in. The plotline revolves around that when Diane and Sam split, uh, Sam sells the bar. He sells Cheers. So Rebecca is now sort of the uh, the manager of the bar who is employed by the company that that owns Cheers. Now, I'll skip to the recommendation and then I'll talk a little bit more about the characters. So the episode that I would recommend for Rebecca Howe is an episode from season six. It's after we've spent a little bit of time getting to know her, um, but before she's really fleshed out where they eventually take the character. It is an episode called Let Sleeping Drake's Lie. The reason I love this episode so much is because of the uh, it's it's a traditional sort of sitcom scenario. Uh, Rebecca is infatuated with this uh, with this wealthy man, uh, Ethan Drake. Uh, I know his last name is Drake. I think his first name is Ethan. But anyway, she comes to find out that Norm, uh, who is at the time uh, in his house painting phase or his painting phase, and he's painting 
Ethan Drake's house. So she's desperate to see the inside of the house. So she gets Norm to agree to let her in. But then they are surprised by the presence of a maid. And so she quickly hides in the closet and winds up getting stuck and locked in there, prompting Norm to have to find a way to get her out before Drake gets home. And he enlists the help of Woody, Sam, Cliff, Frazier. It's it's a really sort of outrageous scenario. One of the more outrageous scenarios that Cheers had on the show, but a very, very funny episode. So that's what I would recommend for the Rebecca Howe uh, sort of recommendation from season six, Let Sleeping Drake's Lie. One of the things that I think is fascinating about the character of Rebecca Howe is that when she starts out, she's a very ambitious sort of, um, you know, 1980s businesswoman, the working girl. Obviously, she's a manager. Um, so she's definitely got a she's got a very different flavor from what Diane Chambers brought to the show. And there are some people who prefer the Rebecca era of the show and some people who prefer the Diane era of the show. I'm not really quite sure what camp I fall into because I, as I mentioned earlier, didn't really totally connect personally with the character of Diane. But I like Rebecca Howe a lot more in the in the first couple of seasons than in the latter seasons. They they make her a bit more neurotic. They make her a bit more sort of frazzled and and dependent upon relationships with uh, with other men as opposed to being the sophisticated, ambitious businesswoman that she was when we were first introduced to her. Now, Kirstie Alley does deliver an amazing performance throughout the really the whole run of the show. She won an Emmy uh, for portraying Rebecca Howe. And uh, and I and I think despite the character's strengths, it it was interesting to me that the show seemed to not quite know what to do with her. I think in the wake of Shelley Long's leaving the show, uh, they were struggling to establish a similar dynamic. Uh, they they also kind of appear to be going in the intentional other direction. Rebecca Howe looks nothing like Diane Chambers, um, and her relationship with Sam is nothing like his relationship with Diane. Um, he and Rebecca do have, they skirt along the edges of being an item together, but they never quite solidify that through the run of the show. Only, only tangentially do they ever really get together. But Rebecca is a character that, in my estimation, could have been much stronger if they had maintained some of what we saw in the in the first couple of seasons that she was on the show, season six, season seven. I, I don't know. Some people may disagree with that. They may think that the sort of the more neurotic place that they took her to by the, the latter half of the show um, really works for the character. It definitely and unquestionably makes for some hysterical situations and for some hilarious moments. Um, she is a very funny character. Kirstie Alley is a, is a very funny actress. Um, but I don't know. I just never quite I never quite got on board with the shift in her character from when we were first introduced to her. But I've, t- I've talked for a long, long time <laughs> for, you know, more than 30 minutes now about all of these different characters. And I want to land the plane for this episode by telling you why I spent so much time talking about those characters and why I love this show uh, so much. So bear with me for just a few more minutes, and uh, I think I'll express to you why I spent so much time talking about these individual characters uh, in total. So the theme song repeats the refrain, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And what I found in watching the show, which I don't think I mentioned this earlier in the episode, but I never watched this show in its initial run. 
I only recently discovered the show maybe two years ago now, uh, might, might be bordering on three, but it was, you know, through Netflix, I saw the show and I was like, Hey, I've never seen cheers. I was looking for a new show and I didn't want to watch anything that was somewhat recent. I sort of wanted to catch up on a classic and uh, cheers really fit the bill. So I started watching it. And in the course of running through the show, I became very inundated with this idea. I used to tell my wife, I was like, you know, not out of any sort of misplaced uh, sense to want to rebel or anything like that. But th there's something kind of appealing about decompressing at the end of a hard day, uh, just going down to a bar uh, where I'm known or where I can meet up with a few friends and uh, and just sort of unload the day. And it's it, it, the idea that Cheers was this sort of safe place, this uh, safe space that people could come and just be who they were. I've mentioned, you know, spent a lot of time talking about the characters. They run the gamut of social class, of education, of personality. Um, you've got your alpha male leading, you know, dashing Sam Malone. And then you have your nebbish, nerdish, uh, sort of Mr. Know-it-all in Cliff Clavin. You've got your, your antithesis of the everyman, uh, the Norm Peterson, who's just sort of the, the, ultimate bar fly but then you've got Fraser Crane the intellectual elite you've got Dan Chambers the the sophisticated intelligent uh, ambitious woman but then you also have Rebecca Howe who is ambitious as well and very authoritative and managerial but then also is is compounded by a wider way array of neuroses and then you have of course, Carla who is just this sassy fireball of a woman and uh, and then you know, uh, surrounding them all is uh, is Coach and Woody. You run the gamut of different people, but they all come to this place where they feel safe and they feel known. And even though they they are teased, and one of the things that I think is fascinating about the show is that a lot of the episodes, contrary to sort of the sitcom formula, is that a lot of the episodes don't really end with with things working out well for the characters. Many times the characters will set out to do a thing and they're not they, they don't really get what they want. Or sometimes they'll end up at the episode of, at the end of the episode in a worse off position or situation than they were at the beginning of the episode. And I always just found that uh, a it was hysterical because many, many times uh, that was played to tremendous comic effect. But it also really just struck me as ultimately very endearing that. These people, some of them have a hard time with life, some of them have a hard time with relationships, but they've got, as I mentioned, this dysfunctional little family unit, this place that they can go uh, when things get tough and when things get hard to wrap your head around, and they've got this sort of safe space. Now, uh, I, as a Christian, I, I often grieve the fact, and I thought about this a lot in Cheers, I'm like, this is a bar. <laughs> I mean, this is where they sell alcohol and this is where, you know, people come to get drunk and, and everything. And, and by the way, the show is very responsible about that kind of thing. They frequently uh, have people who are driven home um, because they're they're too drunk to, to drive home. Uh, they're very responsible about the alcohol consumption on the show. As I mentioned, Sam's a recovering alcoholic. He only drinks water, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, casting that aside, it struck me that a place like this fictional bar, Cheers, uh, is a very appealing sort of safe space. And I grieve and mourn the fact that the church is not frequently like that. 
there's one place where I definitively do not feel uh, sort of at home or comfortable or myself, and that's that is frequently church uh, or among church people. I am often concerned or worried that I'm going to say something wrong, that something's going to be taken the wrong way, or even if it is not necessarily taken the wrong way, that it's going to be challenged or it's going to be disagreed with, or there's not going to be this outright acceptance. And I find that puzzling because I do find that the sort of call and commission, as I understand Christianity, is that that Christians should be some of the least judgmental people uh, in the world, but they're often known for their judgment and for their sort of critical expressions of other people. And uh, it was just fascinating to me as I was watching Cheers and as I was sort of longing for a place uh, where I could just be comfortable and be known and be myself, um, how too infrequently I, I found that in the home of my brothers and sisters in the faith. And so I want to offer in closing, in passing, just a few scriptures and a couple of words of hopefully encouragement. So I'm going to read three passages of scripture briefly. Psalm 139, uh, just verse one, simply says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Verse 2 says, You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And then uh, perhaps my favorite passage in this little section, First uh, John chapter 3, verse 20. It simply says, For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So there's in these passages of scripture, there's this repetition of the knowingness of God, that God knows us, that he knows who we are, that he knows what we struggle with, that he knows what our weaknesses are. He knows what our strengths are. And I want to speak out a couple of things. The first and and probably most important in my heart um, is that you you are known and you are seen, and you may be in a position where you felt very criticized or judged uh, by your family or by your friends or, God forbid, uh, by by people of faith or by the church. And I just want to express that the heart of the Lord is that he, he knows you and that he understands. I guess I just want to say that and, and, and sort of end it there, that what you're going through, what you experience, the Lord does not as I understand it and as I read the scriptures, does not sit in condemnation. Uh, In fact, uh, John chapter 3 and verse 17, the verse that uh, many people know is 16, but verse 17, uh, he says, the Son of Man didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be reconciled through him. Uh, The heart of the Lord for us as people is that we would understand that we are known and that we are loved, um, that our lives are not a mystery, that they're not shrouded in shadow, that we are not perpetually misunderstood. And I want, as a sort of second statement, the first thing is you are known, you are loved. And the second thing is to encourage us as those of us who listen to this show, who are believers, to keep in mind that we have the freedom to disagree with each other. We have the freedom to even challenge each other. But there should always be this 
undergirding of of an acceptance. There should always be this undergirding of of a willful, intentional goodwill towards the other person, even um, if we're calling out uh, something that we that we feel is dangerous or something that we feel should be challenged. Um, it should always be done in a spirit and an attitude of reconciliation. And I'm not saying that that's easy to obtain. I'm not saying that it's easy to achieve. Um, but I would love nothing more than for somebody who encountered me or who engaged with me uh, than to walk away knowing, even if it was not necessarily a very pleasant conversation, that they would know that I genuinely cared about them. And and that in the extent I could, to the degree that I could, uh, that I loved them. And I would want that to be the overarching sort of experience that they walked away with. And so as I was reflecting on uh, this very silly, outrageous comedy, uh, I was really sort of longing for that, longing for there to be a place uh, where everybody did know us and uh, and where we could feel known, where we could feel accepted and where we could feel understood, even if we were teased and even if we were uh, things didn't always go well for us. And even if we didn't always make the best choices, um, that we could feel safe and we could feel uh, at home. Um, so that's my prayer, uh, that there would be more of that for those who feel that they don't have a home and that for those of us who have the opportunity to create a home and a safe space for someone else, uh, that we would take that opportunity to do so. And maybe I'm qualifying a bit too much to say this, but I know that sometimes, uh, safe, is not necessarily the best thing. Obviously, we need to grow and we need to be challenged. Um, the old Narnia quote uh, that God is not, or it's referring to Aslan, but that Aslan is not safe, but he is good. I understand all of that. But the main thing that I want to say is that it's important that we feel understood. It's, infor- it's important that we feel heard. It's important that we feel known. And God does know us, and he does hear us, and he does love us. And that's something that we need to keep in mind as representative, those of us who are Christians, as representatives of him, we have to understand that whatever we may think or feel about the person on the other side of the room or on the other side of the aisle or on the other side of the conversation, that the Lord loves them and the Lord understands them and the Lord knows them. And uh, we should be humbled by that awareness and extend a hand of reconciliation every opportunity that we can create a place as often as we can that uh, uh, that people would want to go. Um, you know, where we're always glad you came, <laughs> uh, to, to quote the song. So I've talked, uh, for way longer than I intended to, and I hope you enjoyed. If you like the show, hopefully you've enjoyed walking down this memory lane with me. If you've never watched the show, please check out the episodes that I suggested. And if you've just come here for the sort of spiritual side of the conversation, then I hope you're encouraged by being reminded that the Lord knows, the Lord understands, and he sees, um, and we should express more of that capacity to one another because he told us that that's how people would know that we were his disciples is that uh, that we loved them and that we showed that love to them. So in that spirit, be well, have uh, have a wonderful whatever you are having run a wonderful rest of your week, a wonderful rest of your day and uh, take care, be well, and we will catch you next time. Thank you for listening.